Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content, written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash member news code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash member and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of our podcast. We are here to have a discussion about a topic that is at the forefront of the minds of technology planners and uh, organizational leaders across the U.S. government and across the private sector, and that is Zero Trust. We've got a great group of experts with us, and I will introduce them in a moment. We welcome the people who've joined us in the studio and all of you out there who are listening. We hope you will be able to join for one of these episodes soon enough. Today, we are very pleased to have with us to discuss these issues for distinguished thinkers on issues of cybersecurity, uh, security overall, people who understand both the government and the private sector. They include Dmitry Alperovich, who's the co-founder and chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, welcome, Dimitri. Thank you. Dr. Chase Cunningham, who's host of the Dr. Zero Trust podcast and chief strategy officer at Ericom Software. Welcome, Chase. Thank you. Juliet Kayam, our friend, CEO of Grip Media, Belfast senior lecturer in international security at the Harvard Kennedy School former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security. Hi, Juliet. How are you? Hi. Good. Thank you for having me. Glad you are back. And our friend and uh, regular and tutor on all things cyber, David Sanger, White House and National Security Correspondent of the New York Times, adjunct lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School and senior fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, and author of The Perfect Weapon. Hi, David. Hey, David. Thank you for having me back. Uh, Well, it's always good to have you with us. Now, Zero Trust is known to a lot of people because it's a hot topic. I would like to start by giving a long, very government-y sounding (laughs) definition of it, and then a short human translation of the government 
definition. And then I want to turn to all of you for a bit of discussion of how we got to where we are. According to uh, NIST, which is part of the Commerce Department where I once worked, Zero Trust provides a collection of concepts and ideas designed to minimize uncertainty in enforcing accurate, least privilege per request access decisions in information systems and services in the face of a network viewed as compromised. ZTA, which stands for Zero Trust Architecture, is an enterprise's cybersecurity plan that uses Zero Trust concepts and encompasses component relationships, workflow planning, and access policies. Therefore, a Zero Trust enterprise is the network infrastructure, physical and virtual and operational policies taken together that are in place for an enterprise as a project of a ZTA plan. The goal is to prevent unauthorized access to data and services coupled with making the access control enforcement as granular as possible. And zero trust is sort of seen as a reaction to what might be called inherent trust approaches to these issues from the beginning. David, one of the reasons that this grabbed everybody's attention was the solar winds attack. Subsequent attacks have also done this, and this led to a, an executive order by this administration, which essentially called for a rethinking of cyber architecture in the U.S. government, recognizing there were a bunch of flaws there. How do you view this genesis of this idea going from, well, you'll forgive the expression, zero to 60 so quickly? No, or from <clears throat> zero to 60 to zero trust. Well, first, let's remind everybody what happened in Solar Winds because I think it illustrates what, if one reads the NIST definition, is a pretty amorphous concept. So, in the Solar Winds case, there was a piece of network management software that was used by many Fortune 500 companies, in fact, most, and many federal agencies. And it was regularly updated the same way that your iPhone is updated overnight every couple of weeks, right, with new software. And the Russians managed through the SVR, one of the primary Russian intelligence agencies, to get into the code updates used by SolarWinds, a company that is based in, uh, in Texas. By getting into that update, they were able to go corrupt the software, create an entryway for themselves, knowing that all the users of SolarWinds would then download that software without a question. I mean, when you update your iPhone, you don't go back and say, oh, before I turn my iPhone on, I'm going to look at every line of code that Apple put into it. You're just assuming that Apple did this right. Well, in the case of SolarWinds, Everybody who imported a certain version of this called the Orion software managed to be bringing the Russian inserted flaw in for them. And for the Russians, it was brilliant because why break into every individual system? Why break into Juliet's network and Chase's and Dimitri's if you can go into a piece of software that you know they will all be downloading? Now, Zero Trust would, in a perfect world, 
assume that whatever piece of software you are bringing in is corrupted and therefore go look for this and get an affirmative sense that it's okay. That is easier to say than it is to actually execute. And that's, I think, our essential challenge. Juliet, you know, I think part of the story, as David tells it, and as everybody lived it here, is that in the case of SolarWinds, for example, there was a piece of software everybody just thought they could live with. And uh, there was something within it that posed a threat. And that, of course, can exist in software form. It can exist in a device that's got something implanted within it. And so we sort of live in a universe in which everything is a potential Trojan horse. (laughs) From the point of view of practical risk management, how is it possible to live, you know, with peace of mind in a world yeah. like that? So it's, I mean, it's a great question. So first you can't, so, right. So, uh, so we, we were in the risk minimization phase of life. That's true for COVID as it is true for cyber attacks. And I think the challenge, you know, if you think that security is actually about the secure flow of people, goods, ideas, and networks, right? So this is the challenge is the whole point of security is to make it a little bit harder to get from point A to point B. So I'll put it in the physical space. That's why we have airport security, right? It, it, like The fact that it's taking you longer is actually the point because that time is when the security features come into place. And so the challenge on networks like this is of course, the, the more, for example, you create zero or you, uh, you have sort of zero trust architecture, right? So limited access, divisions of transparency, you just lose unity, right? And that's that's a challenge for a lot of companies that live off of everyone being connected. I think if solar winds, if I could add here, solar winds marks the sort of this moment, right? Where wow, something big happened and that's normal, right? In the sense that we're all just downloading. I just want to just move a year forward to I think if you look at cybersecurity this year. Uh, in 2021, I actually think that we'll look back at Colonial Pipeline as the equivalent of solar winds. And for a different reason, which is, of course, access, of course, you know, the cyber networks, whatever. But I think it was the first time when we woke up in the, you know, I'm a response person, I'm a preparedness person, and sort of realized, my God, these cyber networks have been built, these cybersecurity systems are in place. Of course, there's going to be a breach. And No one has thought past that moment so that a critical infrastructure facility that is essentially, you know, sending half of the energy needs to the East Coast has one option, which is the on-off switch. That's it. That's not a sophisticated response system. So in the same way that we focus a lot of efforts on prevention and protection and cybersecurity, we better get to response as well and get more sophisticated. It's just not sustainable to have critical infrastructure down for six days. It was their only option. They were pumping blind. I mean, that for, for a couple hours, they were pumping into systems. They had no idea what was going on. That's why they had to turn it off. So I think those are two sort of bookends for what we're learning. So, Dimitri, when I hear an idea like Zero Trust, and as I've heard its development, um, sometimes it sounds like a strategy. Sometimes it sounds to me like a wish. You know, it's like, well, we had this problem and clearly it was because we trusted something we shouldn't. So let's not trust anything. But is there really something inherently new in that? Is zero trust 
kind of intellectual band-aid to make us feel better? Or is there something of substance within the idea? Well, David, uh, first of all, I thought that you were going to end the podcast once uh, you read the definition from U.S. government because it was so clear and explained everything. <laughs> but no, let me let me give you a little bit of history of how this came about, actually. And it actually came from um, another major intrusion that whose anniversary is actually taking place in just uh, a few weeks here. And that was the hack of Google that David wrote about in his books back in 2010. It was actually announced in 2010. It happened in late 2009. From China. It was the first time that a nation state had compromised a private sector entity, a major one like Google, and we learned about it publicly, previously unprecedented. And what Google did in response to that is they asked the fundamental question of how did someone get into our network through an unknown vulnerability? There was a vulnerability in the Internet Explorer browser that no one knew about that the Chinese exploited to compromise a single employee within Google. They got them to click on a link and the link compromised his machine. But then they asked the question of why was it possible for the Chinese to go from that one machine of that one developer that they had compromised to lots of places within the network and get access to Google source code, get access to Gmail accounts of Tibetan dissidents, and lots and lots of other people. And they said that really should not be possible. And then they spent the next seven years re-architecting the internal Google network, a massive effort, where they invented this concept that is now called zero trust. They initially called it Beyond Corp. And the idea was that you need to have essentially a change in the philosophy of how we defend networks. The old model was to build a castle wall, to build a moat around the perimeter of your network and try to prevent everyone from coming in. And they realized, in part through that intrusion, that that was an impossibility. Someone is always going to find a way in. If they don't find a way in, they're going to bribe an insider to let them in. But the door is almost always wide open because there's so many of these vulnerabilities that get discovered or a Trojan horse like SolarWinds that gets introduced into your environment through an update channel. But what they said is that you should not be able to use that initial access just because someone walked in through the door of a bank, they should not be inside the vault. And instead of having that perimeter be around the, the, the whole network, let's build it around each and every system. So even if they manage to compromise that developer's laptop as they did in, in 2009, they won't be able to get access to anything else without doing essentially further hacks. They can't just reuse the password of that developer and move around as if they were them. So that really led to the zero trust concept of make sure that every single machine within your network, every laptop, every device, every server is defendable on its own. And a compromise of that device is not going to take everything down implicitly within that network. And it's a very powerful concept that a lot of people are implementing right now because it assumes breach. It assumes that someone is going to get in somehow through an insider, through a vulnerability, through a Trojan horse, but they should not be able to walk away with your crown jewels just because they did that. You have to make it much, much harder for them, and they have to execute continuous hacks within that network to get access to each and every resource. You can slow them down, and if you slow them down, then you can actually catch them. Thanks. One of the uh, signs that an idea is gaining traction in, in today's society, of course, is that podcasts are created about it. And Chase, uh, you've got a podcast, you know, Dr. Zero Trust. So that means this thing has really caught on. But does that mean that people are actually understanding the term as it has been so well explained here and applying it that way? Or is there a degree of buzz and hucksterism mixed in with it at this point? 
Well, I mean, I, I think um, I think buzz is good because it means that people are paying attention. People are talking about it. I think buzz is bad when you get vendor schlep kind of topping on top of this stuff and saying, oh, gobbledygook, we got the most amazing AI powered super crack smoking ZT solution that's ever been invented, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Like that's the problem that I have with it. And I mean, for, you know, you mentioned my podcast, like that's why I get a lot of positive feedback because I'm as you can tell, I'm just like blatantly honest and real about things as I can possibly be, usually to my own detriment. But the thing is, this is this is a strategy. This is a way of doing stuff. This is honestly, if you think about it, and I, I remind people when I do my workshops, you live your life this way. You just apply it in the context of security. And to you know, um, Juliet's point, you're never going to be... I get a lot of people that go, well, there's no such thing as zero. Sure, there's no such thing as zero, just like a bodybuilder with zero body fat dies. You have to have a little bit. But the point here is to not be the slow gazelle on the Serengeti. And if I do these things and I structure my technology correctly, I survive. And like kind of Dimitri mentioned, they go somewhere else. And unfortunately, in the reality space of cyber warfare, this is about my survival, not about yours. So if my business and my infrastructure is better and more secure, and I make it hooray for chase, sucks for you, but this is what it is and this is how we do better and get better. Everyone can do this. The technology exists, the strategy is here. People know how to talk about this and how to put it in place, but it does require a change in the approach. And kind of like David mentioned, you can even go back and look at Maersk, their big attack that happened. That was accounting software that started that thing that was pushed out in you know that whole scenario. It wasn't... Uh, some super amazing mega hack. It was the same scenario, just with accounting software that caused the initial compromise and then did other bad things. So we know this, it's doable, it's achievable. Just have to be real about it and honest about it and do stuff the right way. Yeah, well, I'm glad, you know, there are people like you out there who are sort of stripping this away to what the truth really is. I personally have focused on minimizing the risk of zero body fat in my life. <laughs> um, and I And I really think I've got my arms around that. We're going to come after one more round of questions to questions from the audience. I already see a few of them up there, but I'll ask everybody else a question, maybe with a fairly brief answer, and then we'll get to that. David, I want to return to you. The Biden administration's response to this has been pretty sweeping. There's been an executive order, and that order has been embraced within DHS, CISA, within DOD, within across departments in the government, each adopting their own architecture. Do you get the sense that we've entered a new era of dealing with these kind of risks and threats with this administration? I give this administration some pretty good grades for highlighting this issue, issuing the executive orders, and doing what they can requiring that anybody who is providing services to the U.S. government has to also comply with these rules. And that's been driven um, at the White House by the new Deputy National Security Advisor for uh, Cyber and Emerging uh, Technologies. And Newberger. And, and Newberger. And uh, it's also gotten a, a big boost from, from CISA, which is, of course, the Computer Security and Infrastructure Security Agency run by Jen Easterly. And we've got a new director of government-wide of uh, cyber uh, in Chris Inglis. 
And all these people have had experience at the NSA. So they know from their involvement in offensive programs how somebody who's trying to attack a system thinks. And that's absolutely critical. The problem they're going to run into is very similar to the problem the government has in doing vaccine mandates, which is to say, the government doesn't have broad authority to mandate this in the private sector. You can try this by mandating it for those who are selling their services or selling their software to the government and hoping that if the word gets around that the government doesn't trust your software and cybersecurity systems, then you shouldn't either. So it's a way of sort of shaming people into going to do this. Part of the difficulty, though, is that everyone's definition of how zero trust works in their network is a bit different. And sometimes you run into very common pieces of software that we discover flaws in that even a zero trust system as implemented might not catch. We're in the middle of that right now. The, uh, there was a very common piece of open source software that last Friday, the government warned had a vulnerability in, in it. And you've seen the entire industry try to scramble and stay ahead of Chinese, Russian, Iranian, and every other hacker who would be using it to get into their systems. So it becomes a race between how quickly you can implement these systems and patch when a vulnerability comes up versus how fast the hackers can move to get into your system. You know, Juliet, David, as he typically does, frames this in a way that's extremely thought-provoking. Because just as we think of public health as a common good, because of the interconnectedness of information networks, information security is also a common good. Information system health is a common good. And contrary to the current political debates of the moment, throughout our history, dating back to Valley Forge, there have been times when the government has said, you must do this, you must be vaccinated, you must protect the community this way. And yet, as David points out, hard to do with vaccines, even in the midst of a pandemic, harder to do in this kind of circumstance. Do you see a way around that? Do you see public opinion on this shifting more towards sweeping mandates and rules? Or is it a shift towards things like the zero trust seal of approval on software? How do you, how do you tackle that? So I do think that the analogy to public health is, is right, because in a sort of way, you know, in the same way health intelligence sort of should drive our behavior, the intelligence that we're getting about the threat environment should drive various behaviors. And I think the same challenges exist. The first is just a more general one that those of read what I write about the pandemic is, is similar, which is the doctors are giving us health intelligence. It's not helpful to people who are often not helpful to people who are not doctors, like a CEO or a mayor or a governor, about how they're going to balance risk versus vulnerability. And that's the stage I think we're in. I'm, I'm kind of done with the doctors. And in some ways, so the security specialists will have a way to think about a network, but you are vying for a lot of priorities that an overall, say, in, uh, organization is going to have. So that's what we're, you're seeing, I think, right now. The second is, um, I think it is similar 
in the sense that voluntariness only got us so far. So you hit a wall with vaccines and you got to get to mandates, right? And just, and, and be brutal about it at this stage as understanding the unvaccinated sort of went away about six months ago for me. And, um, but then for the government to do so, where are you going to start? And then what will that requirement be? So one would be disclosure of any breach. That seems relatively easy. Requirement to pay, uh, to give if there's ransomware, if you pay to ransomware, that might be easy. But then the incentive structure is, is kind of difficult because most a lot of companies have sort of baked it into their planning that they may have to pay this here and that there. So what that mandate looks like is difficult. And then the third thing is we thought, I don't know, the others are a sort of greater expert in this space, but certainly as a, as a consumer of what, of this security field, you know, we thought that the market would drive this, boards would demand it, customers would demand it, you know, greater uh, protections, greater focus on protecting networks, zero trust, all of it. And that just didn't happen. Well, Dimitri, you know, the first reaction when when the government gets involved in something is not to trust what the government does. But Juliet raises a good point, which is, you know, can we trust how the market is responding to this? Well, clearly, no, the market has failed. And all you have to do is read the articles that David writes on an almost daily basis in the New York Times talking about the dramatic failures that we're experiencing in industry across the board, every single sector, not just from ransomware, but from intrusions from the Russians and the Chinese, the Iranians, North Koreans, whole slew of actors that are penetrating our networks and doing all sorts of harms from stealing our intellectual property to disruptive attacks from ransomware groups and the like. So the market has clearly failed, but frankly, it also has the government. And even though the recommendations that the government is advocating for with both the zero trust architectures, as well as the NIST standards that they've come up with in the last five years or so are are fantastic. I think there's an inherent distrust among many in the private sector that when you sort of live in a glass house and you throw stones, as the government is doing on cyber, because most of their agencies have horrific security practices and were thoroughly compromised in SolarWinds breaches and and, and many others. OPM, a famous example where 23 million records of people who have clearances in the US government were compromised that they should not be the ones telling private sector how to do its business. However, I do think that regulation is going to come. We had a dramatic failure this month in Congress, which I know is not a surprise as there have been many, but on this particular issue, there was a bipartisan support to pass the lowest form of regulation, which is to have a breach reporting requirement. So if you get breached, you would report to the government that, that you've had an issue And even that failed to pass and get attached to the NDA this month, even though it has bipartisan support of Republicans and Democrats in the House and the Senate, because in part there was broad opposition industry that does not want to see any sort of regulatory impacts on them. But I think the current status quo is clearly not sustainable. And we're going to have to get to the point where the government is going to start enforcing regulations on industry. Now, the Biden administration has done a little bit of that post-colonial hack using their existing authorities. So one of the things that we're able to do is ask TSA of all agencies, because they are the regulator for pipelines, to do some basic cybersecurity measures. But uh, the reality is we probably don't want TSA to be doing cybersecurity. We don't want, you know, energy department doing 
regulations for cybersecurity for utilities. We have a cybersecurity agency, as David mentioned, CISA. They should be setting the standards across the board for industry in this space. And I think we'll get there. It's a question of how long does it take us to recognize what is plainly staring us in the face. Dimitri's gotten at a really critical point here, which is that this is also fragmented because we're trying to use existing law and nobody has passed new law. So the reason that we got lucky on the pipelines is that there was already a law that gave TSA some regulatory authority on it. But that's for gas pipelines, wouldn't help you with water pipelines, you know. So uh, we're, we're going at this just sort of a little bit at a time, which is not an ideal way to make policy. Well, as you and I have often discussed, the number of people who actually understand this in the Congress could be fit into a phone booth. And that makes this a little bit more challenging. Chase, if we can't trust all of the private sector to get this right, you're dealing with this on a daily basis. Are there segments that are? Are there parts of the private sector that have sufficiently high awareness of security that they're doing better than others and that people can look to for models? Yeah, I would say the one that, in my experience, doing workshops with these folks is uh, is doing the best is probably the banking and finance industry. But that's also because they've been getting the crap kicked out of them longer than anybody else. And they also know that they've got the really valuable stuff that folks are after well, which was, you know, money and, and accounts and those types of things. The one that's the most laggard is, is the medical side of things. Um, you know, if you look at what's going on with hospitals and healthcare and a lot of those organizations, and honestly, it's not that they're not trying and it's not that they don't have people that are doing really good work, but especially with some of the way that those organizations operate, it is, it's not high on their priority list. I'd I mean, I can tell you that I did a workshop with a very major hospital and then the run by doctors. And when I told them about their cybersecurity stuff and how bad it was, the head doctor said, I save lives. I don't care about cyber. And my response to him was, well, then you're going to lose lives. And, you know, he just kind of shrugged it off. So it's crazy to see that go around. The government's doing as good as the government can do because it's a 10 ton battleship trying to <laughs> move uh, very slowly, but but there's progress there. Um, to David's point, I think it's great that we do see some formalization coming into the space, but it's going to take a long time to keep pushing this boulder up the hill. Just briefly in follow-up to that, you say sure. the financial service sector is, is doing better. and That's a low bar. I mean, better is a low bar. <laughs> well, that's the, the question is, how do, what, what, what are they doing that's right? Is it just heightened awareness or is it some kind of best practices or procedures or... Well, Something they, that you see that that you say, yeah, we should all be doing that. I mean, they put a lot of stuff in place to make it easier for the consumer to be engaged in sort of security practices. If you think about over the course of the last, say, 12, 18 months, now you have to do some sort of additional factor to log into your bank account for most banks, those types of simple things. And while it sounds kind of kindergarten, um, it does make a big difference. And a lot of times what you see is the stuff that makes the biggest difference right off the bat initially is not some crazy superpowered James Cameron type of, you know, artificial intelligence, whatever. It's just like Juliet said, making it where it's a little bit more difficult for the adversary to get to you. Now, that's why I say I see that I see them working really hard on segmentation and isolation, like Dimitri mentioned. So I think that they're they're pushing pretty heavily into it, but they have a reason to do it as well. Yeah. And I worry, by the way, as you do, that the, luckily I'm broke, so they can't take anything from me. But well, 
That's a very clever zero trust strategy on your part, although not one that I recommend everybody adapt. David, you know, we've entered this new era of national defense that differs from past eras of national defense in that there is no public sector only solution for it. It requires a public-private partnership along the way. How do you get, how do you rate that partnership so far and how do you improve it? Well, better than it was in the uh, Biden era. I think they've done a good job starting with solar winds and uh, the hafnium attack on Microsoft systems, followed by bringing in some private sector players, putting them in classified sessions, getting the information out to them early on. So I think they worked hard on that. You've seen DHS and, and, and CISA do a much better job of that. But Dimitri hinted at the big problem here when he noted that even the most basic thing that we tried to get through Congress, which is let's make people report when they actually had significant hacks on their systems and report within either 24 or 72 hours, depending on whose version of it you believe, so that you had time to look at the code, spread it out and say to everybody else, hey, this is a big vulnerability that's out there, cut it off before they come for you. Even that failed. And that seems completely remarkable to yeah. me. And tells you, I mean, if you couldn't do it this year, after solar winds, after Colonial Pipeline and a big meat producer were hacked, after we saw the effects that Juliet described before from solar winds, where the company overreacted and ended up cutting off half the oil that was uh, half the gasoline jet fuel that was flowing up the East Coast. If you can't do it in a year like that, tell me when you could get this done. And so it's nice that they are bringing along industry and in all of this, but some of it's going to have to be done by coercion. Yeah, or in the wake of a tragedy, although we do have the kind of Sandy Hook phenomenon, which is we often see tragedies and resistance to action. Juliet, part of the, re the reason that we face the challenge is human nature. Mm -hmm. As soon as one puts programs like this in place, people try to find workarounds. They lose their zeal for them. There's inertia. And I think this sort of parallels a lot of the other things you deal with in yeah. disaster preparedness. Yeah. Are there lessons from that that can be applied to this? Yeah, no, and I'm sympathetic to that. So it's the it's a we have a term for it called the preparedness paradox, and it actually came out of Y2K, which was one panics, right? Puts lots of investment in a potential threat. The impact of that threat is exceptionally negligible in the case of Y2K, and everyone looks back and says, "What the hell were they all worried about?" Right? And in other words, the the, the investment is viewed with skepticism rather than with success. And there's, and so the only real solution to that, and this is the work I'm doing now, is I think an assumption that you're always on the right side of the boom. I mean, in other words, whatever the issue is. And so we tend to think of preparedness as being what we call left and right of boom, prevention and protection. That's where a lot of the cyber money is. That's where a lot of the cybersecurity effort is. And then you ask, Someone, okay, but what if there is a breach and they've like spent like 10% of their time and, and, and budget on thinking about that? 
is to move our focus to the right side of the boom because we're just in an age of disasters, whatever you want to call what this era is. And if you do that, then you could just have a recognition that consistent preparedness is actually not going to get you to zero risk. It's not going to even get you close to zero risk. It is just going to minimize the impact of the inevitable breach or hurricane or tornado, right? That we are in that phase. And so the way I think about it now is just wonky terms like consequence minimization is that our standard of success now is not, did I stop the bad thing from happening? But because it came, is my measure of success is was less, less damage harm. And I think we just have to begin to think that we're in that era now. I'm not saying give up on prevention and protection. I'm all for climate change. I'm all for cybersecurity. I mean, uh, climate mitigation. I'm all for ending radicalization. But too much of our focus has been on the promise of zero risk, right? This idea that if our investments were only better, we would be, you know, unicorns and rainbows. And I, I say that not as a fatalistic thing, but actually as an empowering thing, because we can measure success that way. As we've reached 800,000 dead in COVID, no one, no one thought no one would die from a pandemic. My God, it's a pandemic. But the measure of success was, is it 800,000 or 100,000? That's your measure of success. Yeah. One of the central elements of zero trust, of course, is this idea of assume the breach. Yeah. And as Dimitri was describing it, it's a little like building information systems like submarines. Yeah. Where they're watertight doors. Except for, I just want to say, assume breach is then take, and this, I would actually be curious by those who, who work specifically in this space. Assume breach is often viewed then as, okay, what can I do on the prevention and protection side to make sure that doesn't happen. It does not often translate to what are my options once the breach occurs, right? And I think there's just a lot less emphasis on that as we see with critical infrastructure. I may be, I'm probably generalizing, but to a certain extent, I think that's an accurate description. I I assume breach basically means assume that someone is going to get into your network and that's inevitability. However, don't assume that they're going to get to your crown jewels. Don't assume that they're going to exactly. destroy your network. That's where you need to focus your efforts on identifying them quickly, ejecting them out of your network before they can do that damage. Because cyber attacks, despite the popular notion, don't happen at the speed of light. They don't take place in seconds. In fact, if you look at many of the ransomware cases that we've seen this year, the intrusion actually happens in many of these cases months before the adversary actually pulls a trigger and destroys a network. It takes a long time for them to get in to establish themselves within that network, figure out the right levels of privileges that they need to take everything down at once. This is all driven by humans. Humans do not operate at the speed of light, and you have time to find them and eject them before they pull that trigger. Chase, this is all well and good for the United States government, which is the largest organization in the world, or Chase or Exxon. But a lot of the vulnerability in an interconnected system lies with small businesses, small governments, who are inevitably behind the curve on these things and don't have the resources to address them. How should we be dealing with that? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I wrote a blog a couple of years ago, actually called Zero Trust on a Beer Budget. And I mean, I like beer, um, but the point of it was to say like, look, folks, this is not just something that only major organizations can do. You can enable ZT to a pretty high degree using things that are publicly available, 
you can make it work for you. It requires a dedicated effort, but I mean, I can tell you right now unequivocally, because I do it all the time for small businesses, I do it pro bono volunteer work for people. You can set up a pretty good zero trust infrastructure using things you can get from Microsoft and Google and et cetera, and put that together. This is this is 100% about the right way to approach the problem and putting things in the right manner. I think, my opinion, the cloud is a better way to begin with and actually leverage those capabilities that are there that operate at scale. And then also, funny enough, if you do it right, BYOD is very good for enabling zero trust if you tie that in correctly with the infrastructure and capabilities you have on these devices. So small businesses, in my opinion, don't have an excuse not to enable ZT, but there is a a need for someone to show you how to get there and be guided as you practice and move to that approach. We have to keep in mind what zero trust is actually used for. It's not actually to stop the adversary. It is to slow them down. And why do we want to slow them down? It's to give defenders a chance to find them and to eject them before the damage is done. So one of the big problems we have with small businesses out there is not just the, you know, their ability to design these architectures, but what do they do in terms of the people that they need to actually find these adversaries on a continuous basis? They don't have those people. They don't have those skill sets. And they're going to have to outsource it to manage service providers. And that's expensive. And I think that's the underbelly of weakness that we have in this country. How do you protect every small hospital, every small school district, police department, you know, municipality and water utility around this country? That is the, the fundamental issue that we face in this country right now. Yeah. And by the way, I, sh- I should just add in passing that it's somewhat different from whatever the approach might be taken, say, in China where the government can tell everybody what to do and they have to do it. A quick lightning round question here, inspired by one of the questions from the audience. And that is, what do you think the government, the Congress or the executive branch or the private sector ought to do that they haven't done yet? And I'm just going to go around to each one of you, give us one suggestion here before we wrap up, David. Well, the first thing is, I think the government's got to go figure out what it is that they have to mandate. And I think one of the other things that I would go do is basically completely rethink the concept of classification in this realm. Because we've got a classification system that is based on a pre-cyber age, you can basically, you get information in, the intelligence agencies get it, if the NSA picks it up. And, you know, you reach for a 10-year stamp, a 20-year stamp, or a 35-year stamp on a piece of intelligence that's got a live utility of maybe five days to a week. And so I would, in addition to uh, assuming zero trust, I would assume that all pieces of cyber intelligence are basically unclassified so that you can spread them around to the private sector very fast and very easily. Unless the government can make a case, particularly with sources and methods, that it needs to be classified. Instead, it's done the other way around right now. And I think that's one of the biggest impediments to people actually being able to go implement the opportunity to do what Dimitri said, which is slow the adversary down. Juliet? I mean, I agree with that on slowing the adversary down. I guess if there was one thing that I would do, I always start with the architecture of the security apparatus, because once something bad happens, generally the response is, is or the impact's going to be generally the same, which is to take a good look about how that security architecture has been set up over the years. So just anecdotally, 
you know, after 9-11, every big company buys, you know, gets a chief security officer. That's the sort of gates and guns guys, right? You know, that's the physical people. Then you had the rise of the CISO, chief information security officer. And now you're even getting the rise of the chief health officer, chief medical officer. That's a lot of chiefs overseeing sort of an overall, what's, what's essentially just risk reduction and response capability. It's all the same. So I'm into sort of unifying a lot of the stuff now impacted or influenced by colonial pipeline and, and the sort of shock that there had been so little done on thinking through response capacity. You know, that creates a whole profession that would have been great for me had you started it earlier, which is the chief anxiety officer. <laughs> I think that's I think that's also known as the chief financial officer. I think they're the same in most oh, companies. I like that. I like that. the guy that just worries for you. I think yeah, exactly. And I, and folks, I need a chief anxiety officer. Well, remember, yeah. she wrote security mom. She is the chief anxiety yeah. officer. No, I'm the opposite. I need I'm you know, oh, shit happens, person. But yeah, no, I need more, a little bit more. I need that um, would be a good um, job. I'm available, folks. All right, Dim- <laughs> Dimitri, what should we do or not well, do? So at Silverado, we actually have a whole slew of recommendations for Congress. We're going to make them public in January. But I'll give you one that I think is most critical. And that is, uh, you know, I believe that right now, the most critical national security problem we have in cyberspace is ransomware and all the attacks that are being perpetrated by these groups, largely based in Russia. And the thing that enables them, the sort of the, the oxygen that fuels this fire is cryptocurrency. If you didn't have cryptocurrency, you would have a very hard time by these groups to collect these ransom payments in an anonymous fashion as they're able to do today. And I think we need to start getting very aggressive with cryptocurrency exchanges around the world that do not enforce financial standards for transparency, namely KYC, know your customer, and AML, anti-money laundering regulations. And I would want Congress to allow the Treasury Department to sanction any exchange globally, anywhere in the world, that is not doing KYC and ML and is not working with law enforcement. But very concrete and, and, and much needed. Although the harder you make it for people to get rich in cryptocurrency, I don't know what all the stoners who are going to become billionaires will do, but perhaps we'll, we'll focus on that in a future episode. Chase, last recommendation for the public sector or the private sector. I think there should be a def- definition for negligence in cyber practices. And I think that there should be punitive measures enacted for that. If you're a CISO that's running an organization and you have stuff that is, I don't know, eight years out of patch and it gets pwned and your people suffer for it, you should go inside of bars and wear an orange jumpsuit for a while. It shouldn't be, oops, I screwed up. Here's my $5 million payout and whatever. And I retire and go live on Carmel Beach or something. We need punitive measures. And we we know what negligence looks like. We should define it and we should put measures in place to make sure that that's a real thing. If we built airplanes the way that we do cyber, there'd be five of them on my lawn right now. Yeah, although when you're talking about corporate accountability, I'm not sure I'd use the airline industry as the <laughs> example, given Boeing's recent track record in that regard. But the point is well taken and greater degrees of accountability are certainly going to be an important part of this. I I want to thank each of you. I think this has been an extremely useful discussion. I hope that our listeners have. I'm delighted that the participants in the audience could join in. It's always better to have their questions than mine. Thank you, Dimitri. Thank you, Chase. Thank you, Juliet. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody 
for listening. This is the first in a series of these that we will be doing. We'll be doing about one a month, focusing on the intersection of cyber issues, public policy, and business, with a particular focus on what people in the private sector can do, should do, particularly within certain key industries. It's an area we think the lack of understanding in Washington is a national security risk on these things. The next one we do in the last week of uh, January is going to focus on the intersection of uh, trade, technology, and security, and what is going to happen in that area, what has happened, what should have happened. So hopefully you will join us again for that one and for everything else we do. And if you want to know what else we do, go to the DSRnetwork.com for more information. For now, thanks again, Dimitri, Chase, Juliet, David, everyone for listening. and. Be careful out there. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Harry Lickman, former United States attorney, current L.A. Times legal affairs columnist, and creator and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day, from voting rights. Voting in our country has a specific racial connotation and a racial history, and one in which it has been fundamentally about moving away from exclusion and at a snail's pace to the January 6th Select Committee. We're going to see almost every actor who's culpable in this refuse the subpoena. To U.S. national security and foreign relations. I served in the FBI in the aftermath of 9-11, and I've seen what happens when there's boots on the ground. To anything and everything at the Department of Justice. The hardest thing about coming into the Department of Justice, it's not like everything hits reset. There are court proceedings and investigations that are all midstream, and you don't control when you get to make a decision on those. To hear roundtable discussions with the country's most prominent voices from government, journalists, and law. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts.